Welcome to this edition of Fraud Talk, the ACFE podcast. And for this edition, I'm your host. I am John Gill. I am Chief Training Officer for the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. You may have heard me on some of the other uh, podcasts. Enjoy uh, doing these. We have a little, uh, a little different thing that we're going to try today. I hope that you like it. And so my guest today is Michael Pacalico. He is CEO of SI, a Washington, D.C.-based professional services firm and government contractor in investigations, intelligence, and cyber sectors. Uh, Mike's a four-time corporate chair and for 21 years was an investment banker and CEO of Monticello Capital. He's been a corporate director audit chairman of public and private companies in financial services and technology industries. He's an investigator and, of course, a certified fraud examiner and was chief of staff of a federal government agency, retired commander, and was a Navy pilot. Thank you for your service. His best-selling novel, The Navigator, is a literary thriller with a fraud theme published by McMillan and was very entertaining. I enjoyed it. Mike has degrees from Willenberg College, Harvard, and the Warden School of, at the University of Pennsylvania. So he has a very impressive resume. That is a shortened version of it. It would take up the whole time if we went into too much uh, detail with that. I met Michael at a CFE exam review course that Bruce Doris and I were teaching. Uh, it seemed like now many years ago. Many years. It was the first one ever, John, in uh, Chicago in about uh, 2010. So it was it was a while ago. And so, yes, we, we've uh, I've, I've known Michael for a long time. And so he came to me with this idea. He knows that I was an English major and went to law school, but still have that affinity for uh, reading and for literature. As we uh, both do, my friend, exactly. old English majors are going to uh, talk about fraud today. So he has done a lot of work with investment frauds. At the same time, being an English major interested in literature, if you've ever studied or done uh, a lot of reading on Shakespeare, there is um, theory that is circulating out there that says Shakespeare did not write the plays that have been attributed to him. And it's interesting to people, I think, because they're like, well, that's what they told me in school, that William Shakespeare, greatest you know, writer in the history of the English language, you're telling me that he didn't write these plays. And so that's intriguing to start with. It's like, well, the theory is absolutely, he did not, he was not well-educated enough. He could not have done this uh, by himself on his own. <clears throat> it was actually Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford that wrote those plays. And they had, uh, things that they have found that they want to use to back that up. And so Michael, first, I've never heard of this before, but he had the idea of, you know, looking at the way they are trying to position their theories and their arguments is very similar to how people are selling investment opportunities and how they're describing it and how they're trying to convince you that they're, version of the facts is the correct one and don't believe what you read don't believe other people and 
So in essence, I look at it, we're kind of going to use this like kind of like an allegory. If uh, going back to English major, for example, you, you probably you may have read The Lord of the Flies by William Golding. It's not just a book about kids getting stranded on an island. It really is they use that scenario to examine this idea of how power corrupts people and what a thin line it is between, you know, uh, being civilized and, and just almost complete breakdown, absolute savagery. Same thing with Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. Yes, it's set in, you know, the witch hunts in Salem during the um, 16th century, but it really was an allegory how to, you know, to take those facts, that set of circumstances, and see how it compared to McCarthyism in the 50s. And so we're, I think of it, we're doing the same way. So if you just look at investment, you've heard that before, but sometimes by looking at a different, looking at something through a different lens, through at a different set of facts, you can make those parallels and things become a lot clearer. And, and so John, in, in law, it's how you organize the facts often in a civil case or for a prosecutor as you were in a criminal case, the organization of facts and fact patterns and dominions in which facts reside can give you an entirely different view. And what I thought here is that for those of us that are in the anti-fraud fields, and, and I include lawyers, investigators, law enforcement officers, uh, regulators, all the people that make up ACFE, uh, you know, this is going to be useful, I believe, as a template or, as you put it, an allegory of a way of thinking. Uh, and that's why we've called this the ox fraud, because uh, the, there is a, a bold group, they call themselves the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. They have their own self-published books, uh, they reference each other. Uh, they have uh, lightly credentialed persons who are operating in deeply esoteric intellectual dominions that uh, they are throwing around uh, uh, really well-meaning, well-intentioned, but absolutely wrong-headed, intellectually fraudulent ideas. But to begin, let's talk about just what the ox fraud is. Uh, like all frauds, it starts with a body of belief, uh, uh, a catechetical belief, if you will. And that catechetical belief is that there was a man named Edward de Vere. He was a nobleman, the 17th Earl of Oxford. That's where the Oxford comes from. Uh, de Vere, we know biographically, lived between 1550 and 1604. Um, De Vere, uh, by these persons who are the Oxfordians, uh, is claimed to have written all 37 plays of Shakespeare, all of Shakespeare's sonnets, and all of Shakespeare's poetry. Um, interestingly, there are over 80 persons that have been postulated to have been William Shakespeare, and all of this began in about the mid-19th century. Now, remember, Shakespeare only became to be enormously popular beginning 
in the late 17th and early 18th century, roughly 150 to 200 years after uh, his death in 1616. William Shakespeare, by the way, Shakespeare of Stratford, the actual author of all of the Shakespeare plays, sonnets, poetries, uh, lived between uh, April of uh, 1564 and April of 1616. Uh, we hold his uh, date of birth to be uh, April 23rd, which was also his 52nd birthday, his date of death. And in Shakespeare's lifetime, uh, his first play uh, was produced in about 1589-1590, and his last play produced in 1613. Now, De Vere died in 1604, which means that you would have to believe that Measure for Measure, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, uh, Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, The Tempest, Henry VIII, two noblemen of, uh, two noble kinsmen, all of these plays would have to have been written and produced by De Vere after his death. But the Oxfordians, the Oxfraudians, have an answer for that. Well, you scholars of the Elizabethan era simply have your timeline wrong, and all of you are wrong. So to illustrate, for example, how easy this ox fraud is to bust if you have a inquiring, intellectual, well-trained literary mind. I'm going to share with you what Shakespeare wrote about fraud in his most popular poem, Venus and Adonis, uh, published under his name in 1593. Wander of time, quoth she, this is my spite, that, thou being dead, the day should yet be light. Since thou art dead, lo, here I prophesy, sorrow on love hereafter shall attend. It shall be waited on with jealousy, find sweet beginning but unsavory end, ne'er settled equally but high or low, that all love's pleasure shall not match his woe. It shall be fickle, false, and full of fraud, but and be blasted in a breathing while that bottom poison and the top o'erstrawed with sweets that shall the truest sight beguile, the strongest body shall it make most weak, strike the wise dumb, and teach the fool to speak. That ought to be our ACFE epigram, right, John? <laughs> we can set it to music, it'd be the anthem, maybe. It's incredible, Shakespeare. Now, remember, that's uh, 1593, so Shakespeare was 29 when he wrote that. Now I'm going to read you an authenticated poem of Edward de Vere, published in 1676. De Vere at this time would be 26 years old. This is de Vere's actual poem, Authenticated. Sitting alone upon my thought in melancholy mood, in sight of sea, and at my back an ancient hoary wood, I saw a fair young lady come, her secret fears to wail, clad all in color of a nun, and covered with a veil. Yet for the day was calm and clear, I might discern her face, as one might see a damask rose hid under crystal glass. Three times with her soft hand, full hard on her left side she knocks, and sighed so sore as might have moved some pity in the rocks. 
from sighs and shedding amber tears into sweet song she brake, when thus the echo answered her to every word she spake. They were writing garbage poetry in the 16th century as well. Uh, in order to believe the ox fraud, you would have to believe that the same man who wrote Hamlet, who wrote Macbeth, or maybe we should simply call it the Scottish play, uh, who wrote those lines in The Tempest, uh, who wrote Twelfth Night, is the same guy that wrote that poetry. But if you look at how the ox fraudsters ply their wares within the pseudo-intellectual or high pseudo-intellectual community, you will understand a lot about how investment fraudsters hook their victims. Um, the, and the first point, and this is one that you and I have discussed many times over the years, in the ox fraud, the perpetrators of the fraud prey on what the victims want to hear and what they are psychologically programmed to hear and what they desire or what they like to hear. In other words, what they're saying is, think of this as a Saturday morning at 1030 in the Red Roof Inn in Fort Hayes, Kansas, with 40 people who paid 100 bucks to learn how to get rich in real estate. There is a valuable secret that I'm going to let you in on. And the secret is at great variance from whatever the establishment those people want you to hear, because they play on a fundamental human weakness that I'm an outsider. There are insiders. These insiders know something, and that's why they're successful, and you can't be successful. The ox fraudsters tap into this innate psychology of uh, persons who have this desire. In other words, they're pre-programmed to want to believe conspiracy theories. The establishment wants you to believe this. Look what you've been taught. It's not true. And the rush of this eye-opening experience, and again, even all the brain chemicals that rush you with, oh my God, this makes perfect sense. I mean, the first time I read this, I'm in, uh, I'm an undergraduate, I'm studying British literature because it was a good way to meet cute girls. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm thinking about what I want to do with my life. I'm reading Shakespeare. And what about this? And, and then I, I read, well, wait a minute. This guy died in 1604. How could he possibly have written this? And that was it for the theory. Uh, when you study the background of the people that are the so-called Oxfordians, um, every once in a while, somebody will have a PhD or an MD. They are therefore incredibly smart people. But uh, one of the uh, Oxfordians of the year trumpets the fact that he has the first ever PhD granted for the Oxfordian theory, quote unquote, or the so-called Shakespeare authorship question. Now, even framing it that way uh, makes it sound as though there is a question about this. There is a, no, we have established all of this over a period of going on 500 years now. 
you know, Shakespeare born in 1564, we're coming up on the 450th of uh, Shakespeare's uh, uh, birth. Um, There's an interesting subset of this uh, concept, and that is credentialization. And you often find that in investment frauds. Let let me use a, a real example from my biography. If you found out that I was an investment banker for two decades, that I've been a corporate chair in financial services, uh, that I hold multiple certifications, I've been a public company audit chair, and I have a Wharton MBA, you'd say, well, that's a great guy to invest with. We'd be wrong because I'm not a wealth manager. I'm pretty close to those fields, but I am not a wealth manager. Just because one has a PhD in some related field in the humanities doesn't make that person an expert in Shakespeare, okay? Someone like uh, uh, Lena Orlin at Georgetown, uh, you know, doctorate from uh, Chapel Hill, an Oberlin undergraduate, uh, Guggenheim, National Humanities Center, a fellow of the Folger and the Royal Historical Society. That's a true Shakespearean. Steve Greenblatt at Harvard, uh, author of Will in the World, the, the, the recent, uh, well, maybe 10 years ago, uh, definitive recent biography of Shakespeare. But the idea that somebody is credentialized, well, he is a doctor. He has a doctorate. Well, of course, therefore, he has to be an expert in Shakespeare, but they're not. On the leading Oxfordians doctoral committee, and persons referenced in his own doctoral dissertation. It makes it sound incredibly authoritative, but not one of them is a Shakespearean. So therefore, he can go on and he can essentially create a mythos around himself and his own credentials. Just as if I were a financial fraudster, I would use my own actual biography to create the authority to make you invest in my scam. And uh, if you're serious about investment, you check out the person, whether he or she is actually in balanced portfolio theory and has a credible track record. You'll see my track record is in building entrepreneurial companies in an M&A, not in wealth management. And that's the direct example of how fraudsters can convince you and how so many of the guys that you interview for ACFE are actually pretty highly credentialed and very smart people. And the same is true for the Oxfraudians, except they're not credentialed in Shakespeare. I think that also plays into one of your points that I may be taking out of order, and that is confirmation bias. If I want to believe what you're saying, I could look at this as like, well, you know, Michael is recommending this investment. I mean, he has an MBA from Wharton. And so I, he knows what he's talking about. I'm all in. But if you are doing proper, unbiased due diligence, it's like, okay, that's, yes, that's a well-respected institution, well-respected degree, but does he have any experience in this particular field? 
Sure. It's like, it, you know, if your child needs brain surgery, well, the guy's an MD, obviously he'll be able to do a, uh, a simple trephination and subdural hematoma. No, he's not. He's not qualified for that. He is an MD and so is the brain surgeon, but they do. And it's easy to illustrate with medicine. And uh, confirmation bias works importantly here. And, you know, our colleague, Brett Hood, uh, recently did a piece for ACFE about another piece that, that is related to confirmation bias, which is illusory superiority. Now, in illusory superiority, uh, you know, confirmation bias is what the Oxfraudians do. They drive you down one path and everything on that path only points to one possible conclusion, and that is that Devere wrote these plates. It is heavy-duty confirmation bias along with illusory superiority. Uh, now, like confirmation bias, and, and again, this is uh, Brett Hood's uh, uh, theory and proof, illusory superiority is where you overestimate your own abilities. And that's key to all of these Oxfordians. And when you actually read their stuff, it's the most pedantic garbage writing. They don't know how to construct a simple sentence. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the legacy of Edward de Vere, who was also an awful writer. Um, but the heavy-duty confirmation bias is what says, listen to me, just believe me, your eyes will be opened. In their formulation, any regulated authority is scorned. Because in their world, regulated authority is self-interested, okay? And by, what I, by that, I mean, well, those, those Stratfordians, which is the derisive term that the Oxfordians use for real Shakespeareans, well, you know, they, they only have their own club. And you people at the Red Roof Inn get ready to invest with me. Uh, you've been left out of all of these clubs. So we're going to start our own club. And in this case, the people in the club only listen to themselves. If you actually look at some of their so-called academic writing, it is not double-blind reviewed. It is not subject to peer review by credentialed, real university persons. Yes, some of them have actual university appointments, but when they publish, they are self-publishing. Uh, it is no uh, small coincidence that the rise of self-publishing and the diminishment of cost of self-publishing has resulted in an explosion of these kinds of books. They also constantly, and this is again what financial fraudsters will do, they will selectively apply partial truth. They will use unverified assertion that certainly sounds true to construct a false narrative that also includes partial, verified, third-party verifiable fact. So the other thing is they have a glib and perfectly perfect answer for every challenge, and they use constant repetition constant adherence to an affirmation of whatever it is, is the false core of the fraud. Let me use a fraudulent example recently. 
um, you know, a, a lot of our biggest frauds now are in cryptocurrency, non-fungible token valuation, blockchain-related uh, frauds, uh, executable contracts on the blockchain, and those matters. Uh, they're frequently victimizing persons who are smart, but don't want to admit that they're stupid about one thing, which is cryptocurrency. Well, I'm a smart guy. I'm an investor. I'm pretty wealthy. Therefore, I know what I'm doing. Uh, but if you ask them to explain, for example, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake, and uh, can, you, can you tell me what's in the white paper for Ethereum, uh, they wouldn't be able to do it. And by the way, a lot, of, a lot of people selling this stuff couldn't do that. It's the same with the Ox fraudsters. Uh, they give constant repetition of their own mantra, their own semi-religious uh, catechism, uh, their, their assertion of things like Shakespeare's father was a fraud and made up his coat of arms. Uh, Shakespeare was uneducated. Well, what you find is an absolute amazing autodidact, not an uneducated man. Um, uh, you and I have discussed, for example, how the Ox fraudsters will say, but Shakespeare never traveled to Italy. Look at all he knew about Italy. But when you actually parse the Shakespearean plays about how precise was he about Venice, well, he gets a lot of things wrong. And the reason is he made them up. And as a novelist, I can tell you, sometimes you got to make things up to make the story work. Um, and uh, you can't do that in law. You can't do that in science. But you can certainly do that if you have an unregulated, non-peer-reviewed body where everybody's talking to themselves and the persons that they're talking about. Because uh, that, that psychodynamic of, well, of course, this is the way it is. And, and it, again, when you read the Ox Fraudsters, which I've unfortunately had to do in preparation here, uh, you find this this attitude throughout everything they write. Uh, and, and again, the writing is pedantic. It is dense. Um, we see this constantly, but all of it has a special kind of appeal to the kind of people who are loath ever to admit that they lack technical knowledge. And it's that lack of being able to admit both to themselves and to others that they lack that knowledge it makes them excellent marks for fraudsters. And interestingly, John, we see this factor playing out recently in 22 uh, in the cryptocurrency frauds like Plus Token, OneCoin, and BitConnect. And it's the same way with newly converted fraudsters. In every Ponzi scheme, you got to convert somebody who's going to convert the next guy. The, the beauty and danger of what uh, Bernie Madoff did was franchising his fraud to the fund of fund uh, feeders in France and England uh, and throughout New York and Connecticut, of course, uh, and layering it with an affinity fraud. I mean, the guy was one of the most brilliant fraudsters. We're going to be talking about him 100 years from now. Um, and unfortunately, we're going to be talking about this ox fraud garbage for another hundred years, because the first time you hear it, you go, wow, boy, isn't that interesting? Gee, Mark Twain wrote something about this. And, oh, 
boy, that makes sense until somebody steps you back and say, do you realize, just as I did, have you read the poems that this guy actually wrote? Have you thought that those magnificent plays would have to have been written after his date of death? And if you don't believe that, you have to completely reorder a timeline that has been assembled from true disinterested third party uh, evidence, uh, which is, of course, as we all know, as anti-fraud professionals, is the best and most authoritative kind of evidence. And well, that's it, a, no, you make an excellent point. You do have to be careful to stop and look behind the curtain because, again, the first time I heard that, I was out of college, and I think I saw a documentary or something where they said, oh, well, you know, Shakespeare didn't really write these plays, and how could someone who grew up in a small uh, town, Stratford on Avon in uh, middle of England, how would he have this much knowledge about how history and court life and everything else? I thought, well, you know, I always wondered that. How how did he have such vast knowledge? And well, maybe they're on to something here. And so it is interesting. You start going down this road, but you're you're correct in that if you stop and really look at the evidence they're putting forth, it doesn't it doesn't hold water. It, it just doesn't stand up under scrutiny. But there's enough of that at the beginning, that doubt of, well, yeah, I always wondered how, you know, did that work? And, and it's the investment frauds the same way. And you say, well, yeah, I always wondered how did they make so much money in real estate? It just, you know, it just seems so easy. You're like, well, I know the secret to this and I'm going to tell you this. But when you really start to peel away the onion, you realize there's nothing here. But that's the problem is most people just will take it and run with it and never want to examine any of the details. Well, and of course, that's exactly what the, the, the it's exactly hard science. And in social science, in any human discourse, where a postulate is being challenged, the burden of proof is on the person challenging. In science, when there is an established science and someone attempts to challenge that, the burden of proof is on the person who is trying to rebut the presumption. But I want to read you from an actual Oxfordian. Those in authority rely on the force of tradition to buttress their power. There's that power thing again. Not surprisingly, explicit or implicit appeals to tradition are fundamental to the Stratfordian case. For example, Stratfordians, like you and me, illogically maintain that the burden of proof is on those who dispute their theory. Whimsically, I consider this to be an appeal to an intellectual version of, quote, squatter's rights. We still suffer from what seems to be a profound misconception about just what lessons we should learn from the Enlightenment. Evangelical atheists take it to mean that belief in God is not only wrongheaded, but that religion is all bad, and conversely, science is all good. Unconsciously, it is one of their many regressions to a Manichean worldview 
with its either-or mindset. But I believe it would be more accurate to conclude that the Enlightenment proved the corrupting influence of excessive power, authority, and prestige. Now, how many times have we seen investment fraudsters and even occupational fraudsters who flip-flop the regulatory environment? This is precisely um, what Donald Cressy and Joseph Wells wrote about when they constructed the psychology around which we base the fraud triangle. It is exactly the type of ratiocination that you find in every one of the fraudsters that you interviewed. You know, I would respect a fraudster if he just stood up once and said, I stole it because I was greedy. I thought I deserved it. I am a criminal. I know that I'm bad. None of them do that. They all come up with a rationalization, a rationalization, a moral authority that they take on this mantle. It's that uh, Cressy really did believe that was the most important leg of the triangle because that's the one that gives them permission. And what you, what you heard right there from one of the primary ox fraudsters is, well, you know, I don't have to prove, you have to prove. It is the heightened intellectual version of, well, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. It is, it is intellectually dishonest, and it's also intellectually immature when you start parsing their actual words and their actual arguments about this guy, Devere. And the reason I point this out, and that's why this is so interesting, is it's precisely the way financial fraudsters work. When you say, well, that can't possibly work. No, your math is wrong. Okay. Uh, When Harry Markopoulos went to the Boston office of the Securities and Exchange Commission and says, look, here's the math. It can't work. They said, Markopoulos, you're nuts because this is Bernie Madoff and he was the chair of NASDAQ. Okay, there's the authority. There's the power. All of the fraudsters that we see, whether they're in financial fraud or whether they are in literary and intellectual fraud, are using the same psychological levers to pull people in to their false narrative that, as I showed, is constructed from partial truth and assertion. And remember what they taught you in law school, John, assertion is not argument. And all of the ox fraudsters love assertion. I encountered a whole body of scholarship about how Shakespeare, the dark lady of the sonnets, the troubled marriage and romance with Anne Hathaway. For for those of you who aren't familiar with Shakespearean biography, Shakespeare, born in 1564, was married at the age of 18 uh, to a woman who was then eight years older than he and was pregnant with the first child at a time in which uh, a premarital pregnancy was was certainly frowned upon uh, and was not sanctioned by the church, which had immense authority in Elizabethan uh, England. Um, and uh, and there, this whole body of scholarship was, was revolving around, was Shakespeare gay? And uh, a serious Shakespearean scholarship examining, using Freud's work, 
using uh, the, the the father dynamic in uh, in Hamlet, uh, using Othello certainly, and and remember in the civil rights era we saw a lot of scholarship about Othello and miscegenation. Uh, so Shakespearean scholarship also tends to follow uh, societal trends in culture and in a progressive advance of society. Uh, recently, uh, in June of 2019, uh, in the Atlantic, uh, you know, a, a, a very trusted publication, a woman named Elizabeth Winkler, uh, Ms. Winkler, a very respected journalist, uh, not a Shakespearean, uh, posited a new Shakespeare authorship question, where she documented a woman who I had never heard of, Emilia Bassana. Uh, Bassano, born in London in 1569, says, well, wasn't Shakespeare a woman? Actually, her essay is titled, Was Shakespeare a Woman? And she has an elegant case how Emilia Bassano uh, was a, uh, a Shakespeare authorship candidate. Now, in order to believe that Emilio, Emilia Bassano was the, the author of Shakespeare's plays, you would have to believe that a 20-year-old woman wrote Two Gentlemen of Verona, The Taming of the Shrew, and Romeo and Juliet, which are contemporaneous with her 20th and 21st birthday. Uh, not going to happen. Isn't true. And uh, uh, some authors in 2019 wondered whether all she was doing is trolling the Oxfordians, who, of course, rushed to the defense of their candidate, Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, and the so-called real author of the Shakespearean canon. Uh, and it's just like the fraudsters when a likewise fraud is brought forth to them. Every Ponzi schemer I have ever known, and I've only had a couple because their Ponzi schemes are actually still pretty rare. Every one of them will start out by saying, I'm not a Ponzi scheme. Here's how I differ from Gaetano Ponzi and what he said. And here's why what I'm selling is not what he was selling. And that's why you can believe me and you can't believe them. And that's exactly what the Oxfordians do. So that's a key characteristic here. Uh, all Most forms of financially related fraud, and, and in this instance, I actually do mean occupational fraud and all the small business frauds that we've all uncovered. Um, at their core, they're slightly believable. And when you repeat it, and when you decredentialize and disestablish likewise frauds, your fraud can get bigger. You can gain more adherence to the fraud. Why do we not believe Francis Bacon is the real author of Shakespeare anymore? Because Bacon is right now out of favor. Okay, why did we start to believe uh, the the seventeenth Earl of Oxford is really well? We didn't, but why do why do vulnerable persons start to believe that? Well, the reason is just like in Bernie Madoff, who was an incredibly charismatic guy. I never met him, John. I, I don't think you have either, but but I know people who knew him well. Um, they are charismatic people. That, that put this forward. 
guys like uh, Charlton Ogborn, an incredible lecturer, a storyteller, uh, used emotion in his voice. Uh, um, B.M. Ward, another uh, excellent lecturer, a guy named Thomas Looney, which, by the way, the Ox fraudsters will tell you every time his name is not pronounced Looney, it's Loney. Now, I don't know how L-O-O-N-E-Y is pronounced anyway other than Looney, but uh, without attribution, you keep hearing that from the Ox fraudsters that it's not Looney like crazy or like the Canadian dollar, it's Looney, therefore ending, uh, lending an air of authority and gravitas to this absolutely loony theorist. In addition, in the concept of believe mine, not his, there are also proofs of Oxford's uh, authorship in the so-called authorship question that are rejected by the so-called Oxfordians. For example, there's a book in which a guy took a red pen through all of the sonnets in the first folio as they are organized, found a cryptographic clue that spells out the word Oxford, Oxford throughout using cryptographic uh, tendencies. And of course, this is rejected by the Oxfordians uh, by, oh, wait a minute, that guy's a fraud because that's so clearly uh, not true. Uh, but but my non-truth is really true. Uh, and, uh, and you see that constantly in financial fraud. That's a fraud, and I can show you mathematically why it is, but mine is good. Uh, and I'll show you all the people I've made wealthy. And as, as we've spoken about, if a guy's really wealthy, would he be teaching a real estate seminar to people paying a hundred bucks a, a head to be in a uh, it, it, to be drinking bad coffee at a Red Roof Inn uh, in, in a uh, airport destination city on a Saturday morning. Uh, ask yourself, does this make sense? And you can stay out of an awful lot of financial frauds. What we do both in law and in real literature is that we prove by consensus and we prove by common sense. Keep in mind always fraud may be prevented by consensus and by common sense. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting when you look at fraud, I think it's always important to ask what is the etiology and causality of the fraud? In other words, where did it begin? What was the origin of this kind of fraud? Or what was the origin of the new emolument in fraud. What did this guy do that invented something new? Okay. Um, Madoff clearly invented something new. The, uh, the cryptocurrency fraudsters really didn't invent something new. They're doing what your derivative example guy did. But, uh, you know, the original Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare. Shakespeare didn't write the Shakespeare plays conspiracy. Um, I tried to track it down. And um, I found an almost incomprehensible pamphlet known as The Romance of Yachting, uh, which was published in 1848. And 
it actually debuts the technique that you find in the Ox fraudsters. Uh, they, they arrogantly demand that the mid-19th century Shakespearean community, which, is, which was admittedly pretty small in the mid-19th century, when a lot was going on more than um, the advance of humanities, um, they arrogantly demand that the community has to prove what we already know to be ground truth. Uh, it's precisely the opposite of the scientific method, just as fraudsters are precisely the opposite of common sense and due diligence. If, how many times have we told people, if it's too good to be true, it is not true? And it's the same way where they, they establish challenges that should never have been established in the first place. And they make, they continue it because frankly, it doesn't cost anybody anything to believe the falsity of this ox fraud. Um, and most people who entertain it, they spend a little time reading about it, thinking about it, arguing about it at the bar or in some internet chat room. Um, I often wonder, would this exist to this extent if uh, we didn't have the availability of social media? Um, because you can be pretty famous in your own little world in any narrow, narrow, narrow domain. And that's what feeds the egos of these guys. And that's also what feeds the egos of fraudsters. Uh, an oddity of fraudsters that, that I've encountered is that uh, when you look at uh, 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 you know, for example, Gene Soltis's book, Why They Do It, uh, and, the, and the people he interviewed, and those whom you've interviewed, what you find is uh, some of these fraudsters are really operating out of ego, out of an unfulfilled need, out of, neither of us are psychologists or therapists, but uh, I, I work with a great uh, anti-fraud therapist whom you've met, uh, Dr. Mike Grelis. And, um, uh, and he sensitized me to the fact that some of these guys don't steal because they're greedy. They steal because they, they have what they believe a need to take. And uh, I've never once heard a fraudster say, you know, I've had enough. Um, I, I'm wealthy enough. I'm going to quit. They keep going, they keep doing it, they never stop. And that's exactly the case of the ox fraudsters. When you see this behavior, when you see this kind of fervor, when you see this passion, when you see this shift of responsibility, when you see this shift of challenge and shift of the rebuttable presumption, when you try to make the established wisdom prove its own self to me, the challenger, that's where your antenna should be up. And you should be saying, this is fundamentally a fraud. It's an indicator of fraud, whether it's literary or financial. Well, Michael, that was a good uh, statement to, to end the podcast on. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. I, it, I, really do enjoy the exercise in both ways because I do think fraud is fraud and trying to convince people that Shakespeare did not write the plays even though there's this mountain of evidence that he did and 
uh, the evidence on the other side is almost non-existent, but still this in this, the, the techniques that they use to get people on their side are interesting. And then to take that and compare that to investment fraud is something I never really thought about doing, but I do think it shows you how the, these same techniques can be used for almost any type of fraud that involves manipulating people's thoughts and beliefs and bringing them into the to the fold, whatever that belief is. So I, I thought this has been a real interesting exercise. And it wouldn't, you know, we couldn't end any discussion on Shakespeare without at least a good Shakespearean quote. So have you oh, got John, one? I've got one for you. And and it's again, I, I said earlier how Hamlet was my favorite Shakespearean play. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Hamlet dealt with a lot of binary and gray matters, and he dealt with uh, apparitions, ghosts, uh, delusions, uh, were, were the ghost devils in disguise. And, and that's kind of the way I think of the Oxfraudians as they are, uh, they are really pernicious uh, intellectual fraudsters in disguise. Uh, but, you know, uh, early in Hamlet, in the, um, uh, in the first act, he declares that he's actually seen an honest ghost um, and that the ghost told him something honestly, of course, about the death of his father. Uh, but then his confidence starts to wane. He starts to not believe what he knows to be true. And of course, there you get the conflict of Hamlet. And he then says to himself, the spirit that I have seen may be the devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he's very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. And I think we should close with that thought from Hamlet that sometimes fraudsters can really make us damn ourselves. It's been a pleasure to visit with you, with our audience, and with all of my, call them brothers and sisters, in the cause of anti-fraud and in the great organization that you and Bruce lead in Austin and uh, from Washington and from our offices here at SI. Uh, uh, I thank you for having me. Well, Michael, thank you very much for being our guest today. That, uh, like I said, was very interesting. I enjoyed it very much. And so uh, thank you all for listening. And on behalf of the ACFE, this has uh, been John Gill. And thank you for listening to another episode of Fraud Talk.